All right, how are we, church? We doing all right? All right, well, uh, the choir saw it. We've got a couple of props up here that I hope will not scare you too much. But uh, we're going to talk this morning on the subject of the elephant in the room, uh, which is wrath and judgment. That's what I thought. Nobody's like, yes, let's talk about wrath and judgment. Right on, man. Well, you know, I don't know if, if you're like this, but whenever, I mean, even, and I was, I was raised in church. I had a godly family who taught me the Bible from when I was very young. But you don't, if you ever notice this, if you've read your Bible, and if you're new to church and this, that's fine. We're going to give an intro so you won't be, be lost in the details. But you don't have to really read the Bible very much or very long until you come to some verses and passages that are almost downright scary. Have you ever been there? You're reading along and you're like, okay, all right, I'm right on with that. Okay, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. All right, right on. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you come to books like Nahum, that if you could put music to it, you'd have to have screamo or heavy metal. I mean, it is just like a book of judgment. Then you come to the statements of Jesus where he talks about hell. And he talks about where, where there is fire. And then, then you really get the full dose when you see the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. I'm um, in chapter 14 specifically to where it talks about those who reject Christ will be in the, in, in this, this place called hell, um, where the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And if that's not scary enough, then you really go to Revelation chapter 21 to where it gives a list. And unless you're really not being honest with yourself, you could see yourself in that list somewhere because it gives kind of like an all captioning and all liars. You ever told a lie? How many lies does it take to be a liar? Just uno. That's it. And all liars shall have their place or have their part, their reservation in the lake of fire. Forever. Means that there's no exception clause, there's no asterisk. It means that once the door is shut, you're there and your doom is sealed. So you've noticed stuff like that when you've read your Bible. And sometimes we may pass over that. But something that you may have also noticed in current Christian culture is that we don't really talk a whole lot about that stuff. Has anybody caught that? Alright? And I'm not trying to put down other churches. We don't, we don't do that. We're certainly not putting down other preachers. But just as a general survey, if you watch preaching on television, you will probably click and click and click until you have to replace the batteries in your clicker until you find someone who will open up the Bible and talk about the elephant in the room which is something that we know is in there in the Bible, but we just don't like to deal with it. And that's the subjects of wrath and judgment and hell. Now, I'm sure we could have a long discussion on why we don't have that. Why we don't talk a lot about it. Let me just give you a couple of reasons of why I think a lot of times we shy away from that. Um, because we live in a pretty seeker-sensitive culture, don't we? Right? You go, you go to have, get fast food and it's have it what way? Have it your way. When you walk into any business that's going to last, 
they say, who is always right? The customer is always right. So we live in this world to where it's like, I want to be right. I want to feel good. I want to be comfortable, right? But when we come to the Bible, there's some stuff that's really not very comfortable. But because we're going through the book of Luke, verse by verse, word by word, there's certain things that we can't get away from, right? There's some things that we could try to do, the dipsy doodle and the, the jitterbug and, you know, the, the choo-choo train or whatever dance we try to do in theological language. But when we go through a book of the Bible, you come to something and you got to deal with it. Now, here's normally the question. You say, now, 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 Jeff, is talking about wrath and judgment and hell, and this is for the thinkers, isn't that the ad baculum fallacy? Um, Latin for an argument to the stick. Uh, think back to somebody trying to persuade you to say, if you don't do this, we'll fire you, we'll beat you up, we'll burn your house down. Um, I, have a, I have an Italian friend who's, who's from New Jersey, and uh, he said that one time uh, his mom bought some furniture, and the furniture dealers did his mom wrong. They basically ripped her off. So he said, the only thing I did is I brought my boys in the store, and I said, you got fire insurance? Everybody in New Jersey knows what that means. You don't make it right, we burn you down. Ad baculum, argument to the stick. Is that what discussions about these tough subjects actually is? Please remember this. Speaking the truth in love is never a scare tactic. Okay, we've got to we've got to grab a hold of that. If you and I, who love Jesus and love people, speaking the truth, you want to write this down. This is I guess this will be the, the the driving thought of this message. It's why we do what we will do this morning. But speaking the truth in love, okay, speaking the truth in love is merciful. Speaking the truth in love is not a scare tactic at all. Um, let, let me give you a statement by Jonathan Edwards. He said, "'Tis a reasonable thing to frighten a person out of a house on fire." Y'all catch that? That's pretty deep. Let, let me, in case you didn't grasp the theological and the exegetical context of that analysis, here it is. That was a joke. Here we go. Uh, "'Tis a reasonable thing to frighten a person out of a house on fire." If the house is on fire... You are altogether justified, but let's go a step further. You're not only justified, I would argue, and I think that most of us could agree on the fact, you're not only justified in warning those people, and yes, even frightening them, but I think that you are bound as a duty, a moral person who loves people, you are duty bound to warn them that the house is on fire. And if that's the case for like a physical fire, then how much more would that be the case for us who claim to love Jesus Christ and love people? How much more would that that be the case to warn people of the house is on fire and it's called hell? And unless you exit the house and repent from your sins, you'll be there forever. And one of the reasons why I think that we don't talk about stuff like this very often is because we love our self-image more than we love people. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If I confront you with a brutal truth, or you confront me with something that I have done wrong, that I need to repent of, 
What you would be doing to me is you would be putting my relationship and yours on the line. You're putting yourself in the place of possibly getting rejected by me, having your feelings hurt and our friendship ended. But you care so much for me that you say, you know what, even if Jeff is arrogant and belligerent, even if he rejects my advice, I still care about him enough to take that chance. Because if Jeff continues on the path that he's on, the only thing that awaits him is destruction. So I love him enough to risk my self-image and him saying something about me. We all track him with that? We all on the same page? So it is a test of whether we speak in love about these subjects on how much or if we actually love people. And when I lived in Texas, they had something called tornado sirens. And it is just, have you ever heard that before, right? Ever been in a place where they had, do they have those around here? Okay, firm, 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 firm college, firm college's got one. All right. <clears throat> if you've ever heard a tornado siren, it's not a normal siren. It's almost like, it's almost like, for those of you who've seen the terrible movie Dumb and Dumber, the most annoying sound in the world. All right. Go back to that moment. It's almost like a slash between that, the whine of a, it's an, it's, it's, it's annoying, shocking, almost an eerie sounding siren, isn't it? Kind of like, judgment is coming. Get downstairs. And you're like, oh, you know, make it stop. But it is annoying. because well, Another example, national radar, right? You're sitting there watching your favorite football game and all of a sudden, eh, eh, eh. you're like, dude, can't they get a different sound? Why do they have the annoying sound? Because it gets your attention. You're like, if I'll just read it, maybe it'll stop. In the same way, I think, and I think back before I was saved, when I would go to church, and, and that was actually when, when churches would have things called revivals. Some of y'all remember those? Okay, revival meetings where preachers would preach on tough things. And it was like, I knew deep down in my heart that what he was saying was true. But it was like, what I heard was, eh, eh. And when we come to the point where we get real with God, we have to accept that that noise, that, that siren, is actually the siren and the interruption of love. I want you to think about this thought before we jump into the text. Could God still be totally loving, absolutely holy, if He never gave us a warning of hell? And if He never actually gave us an option out of hell? Could God have still been totally just, totally holy? The answer is absolutely yes. A judge only owes a criminal justice, right? I don't know if any judge has ever said, you know what, I didn't. I, the guy went out and he, he murdered someone and we gave him life, and sentence, uh, life sentence or, or whatever it was. Or, but I didn't go out and buy him a brand new car. I'm a terrible judge. Like, that, that doesn't even make sense. And likewise, it doesn't make sense for us to think that God's character would be diminished if He didn't give us mercy. But I praise God that He has. Amen? There's this one German pastor, and he said, I'll never forget this, at this conference. And he was preaching in English, and he said, The cross is the biggest roadblock on the way to hell. Amen? 
It's a roadblock saying you don't have to go. But before a a person will ever recognize that they need to change and need to repent and need to be saved, they have to understand what the facts actually are. We don't normally do this, but in our bulletin we have um, it captioned as scary facts. Okay? You guys okay? All right, if you're not saved, this is, and this is not just like joking. Um, this is, let, let me just go ahead and give them to you. Let me give you five scary facts right out of the gate, and then we'll, we'll, we'll break them down uh, piece by piece, and we'll walk through what repentance actually is. Number one, scary fact. By nature, we are children of Satan. You're like, what? Seriously? No way. Number two, God's wrath is coming. I would bold and underline is. It is coming. Number three, godly heritage and culture will not save you. Godly heritage and culture will not save you. Number four, judgment is near, final, and eternal. And finally, repentance is necessary to be saved from God's Wrath. Those are the facts that we're going to break down. Then we're going to take a look at the question. You're like, okay, now Jeff, I believe that. I believe, you know, that, that, that God is real and that judgment is real and that sin is bad and I'm a sinner. But I think I've been saved, I, I, but I'm not really sure. Does my life have the evidence of someone who has genuinely repented? So, a little bit of context here. This is John the Baptist, right? He's straight there in the wilderness. He's got a coat of camel's hair, right? Pretty fashionable, all right? Like a good little trip to the, uh, to the Goodwill, all right? Anybody, anybody Goodwill shoppers here? Let me get a witness. Is Goodwill not the coolest store on the planet? Right? Goodwill is the only place that you can go and find a, a jacket, a pair of pants that fits, a VHS copy of Top Gun, and a gnome candle. Right? I mean, that ought to excite you right there. And you just walk out and you're like, random! And you're just like excited. And you bring that. People are like, well, how does that fit together? You're like, it doesn't. It's Goodwill. You know, so, so, um, th- think of John the Baptist. He's got this garb on. He's got this outfit. And his food was, for, for our Bible students here, his food was locusts. Which, by the way, I don't, if you, I've always wanted to think, you know, I've, I've gotta be legit. If I preach on John the Baptist, I need to eat a locust. This may have been a result of watching too many Bear Grylls. But if you have locusts, let's do a man contest and let's do it, baby. Fry that sucker and eat it down. Alright? Some of y'all are like, that is beyond weird. I am never coming back ever again. It'll prepare us for mission trips in the future. Alright? To the glory, to the glory of God eating bugs. Alright? And also he was eating, uh, honey. Right? He would eat honey. Now, somebody tell me, um, well, last week we did, we discussed that that wasn't totally random. That there was a huge figure in the Old Testament who wore the same outfit and he was Elijah. The original hellfire and brimstone prophet. The guy who stood up against 400 prophets of Baal. Guys doing all sorts of demonic incantations and cutting themselves and chanting all day long. And he's making... This is actually in the Bible. Alright, so if you get offended by maybe uh, roughness. Uh, he said, basically, he was trash-talking these false prophets of Baal. Saying things like, Oh, why isn't your God answering your prayers? Maybe your God is, is using the restroom. That's in the Bible, and that's putting it very mildly. Very mildly. In fact, when you actually break down some of the terms in the Bible, they're not what you... F- anyway, um, that's, a, that's another, another subject for another time. So, 
he's, he's got this, when people see him, they're Jews, so they think Elijah, they see him, and they see kind of like the, um, as we used last week, the illustration of a SWAT team piling out of the truck, and you see the SWAT team, and you realize that they're not there um, to read chicken soup for the soul, all right? We follow it. They're there for business. And when they see John the Baptist, they're like, oh, son, here it comes. So what comes? Notice what he says. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Now, now don't miss this. He's not saying what he's saying to people who are running away from God. He's saying what he's saying to people who came to get baptized. You're like, dude, you talk about preaching to the choir. Like he is literally, um, like somebody comes like, hey, you know what? I'm a sinner and I need, I need to follow God. I need to repent. I need to be baptized. And notice what he says. By the way, this is, this is basically the first words of God through a prophet in over 400 years. This is, this is so awesome. Here we go. <clears throat> Quote. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't you want to just put that on a Christian coffee mug, right? You know, get your little Christian t-shirt, you know, and put that on a bumper sticker. Well, some of y'all be like, I know, for tailgaters. Yes, that's my kind of bumper sticker. They were coming to be baptized, and he told them this. Now, now we, it's hard to think, because we're not Jews, uh, but at least probably most of us here, and we're not in first century Palestine. But in first century Palestine, they believed Genesis, and they believed the Genesis story. Uh, and someone tell me, in Genesis chapter 3, who showed up and tempted Eve? Satan, in the form of a... Uh-oh, so you know what he basically did? He called them little devils. I don't, in some else, like, yeah, that's probably bad. You don't even want to be called a devil. But for us, it would be something akin to, and this is, this is very shallow. It would be something like telling, you know what? You are a, you are a Nazi, uh, loving, Al-Qaeda supporting, uh, baby killing, human traffic, uh, participating, and the list goes on. Things that just cause moral revulsion in us. We say, as an American, I would, I, no, I, I detest those things. I reject those things. He's calling them the worst possible term that you could use against a Jew. It's difficult to find an equivalent for us to understand it. And he called Jews offspring of Satan. We have any people who hate snakes in here? Let me let me see you by a raise of hands. To the glory of God, you hate snakes. And I remember growing up in Louisiana, um, I, I, I had been taught about this. And in Genesis uh, chapter three, when when God says He gives the prophecy that the Messiah would come, and He says, "You speaking of the snake will strike his heel, but he will strike or crush your head." I remember going squirrel hunting one time, and uh, we were out there, and and this was in the first part of squirrel season. It's still kind of warm out, and we, me and my buddies, we have our our shotguns, and we hear shh. You know what that, that is, South Louisiana? It's a big snake. And in front of us in the path, we see a big, huge cotton mouth with that head up, that proud, evil-looking, pointed head. And so all of a sudden, he had a, he had a double barrel, and I had, a, I had a pump. We just start unloading from the hip. I mean, it just was, it just was not, it was just second nature, just unloaded, and it's flopping all over the place. If you don't like violent stories, you can go ahead and do this, because I am all about violence to, uh, to snakes. 
Just kidding. Not animal cruelty. But man, that thing was jumping all over the place. And, you know, my buddy went over and he, he tried to shoot it again. And we, we got the foot and put it on the back of the head. And Sue so was barely moving. And he got his, he put two more shells in his, his shotgun. And he just put it on top of the head and blew its head away. Can I get an amen? Say, oh man, what are you doing? Just fulfilling, fulfilling scripture, right, church? We'll crush his head. As much as some of us get freaked out by snakes, the Jewish reaction to being called, you brood or you pile of little snakes. Wouldn't even be a comparison. Notice, notice what he says here, you brood of vipers. This is a huge theological term to tell us that naturally, the way that we're born, when sin entered into the human race through Adam and Eve's sin, it was almost like DNA of sin got plugged up. And when we were born, we were born predisposed to hate God and love ourselves. That's why we find it so difficult to do the things that we know that we should do because we still have the image of God. We're still created in God's image. That's why we have these things where we're like, I know I should do this. I know I should follow God. I know I shouldn't go party. I know I shouldn't gossip. I know that I should give instead of hoard. I know that I should encourage instead of give words of criticism. I know I should, but it just seems like the general bit of my life is to not do those things. Welcome to human life. It's called the sin nature. And through Jesus, a person can be freed. So notice what he says there in the latter parts of, of verse 7 as well. He says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. He's saying that God's wrath um, is coming. Write down this text. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul says, because he, speaking of God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So, you know, Jeff, well, what exactly is God's wrath? Because when I think of wrath, I think of waking up my mom on a Sunday afternoon from her nap when I was a kid and she did not wake up on the right side of the bed. Are you with me? When I think of wrath, I think of road rage. When I think of wrath, I think of, of, of street fight. When I think of wrath, I think of domestic violence. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is not... You may want to write this down. This will really help you as you read your Bible. God's wrath is not an emotional outburst, but is unfiltered justice. Let me give that to you again. God's wrath is not an emotional outburst, but is unfiltered justice. You could also write unmitigated justice. That means simply that God's wrath is God's nature revealed. For example, God loves life. God loves children. Therefore, God, and this is a huge theme in the Old Testament, God hates those who oppress children. God hates those who murder children. God hates that which goes against the object of His love. Uh, another question here, you're saying, okay, now Jeff, I understand what God's wrath is, but is God's wrath really reasonable? I mean, like, come on. You know, I understand, you know, the Bible's written, and, you know, you may believe it's the Word of God, but um, which I, in fact, do fully. Absolutely. The Bible is not simply the record of God's Word. When you take religion courses in college, be very careful. Because they can poison you against the Word of God. It's not simply the record of it is the Word of God. 
Y'all okay? Sam, Jeff, what do you mean about the college courses? There's a lot of college courses that will try to diminish your faith in the Bible that will end up resulting in a diminished faith in Jesus Christ. Say, is God's wrath really, is it really reasonable? I want you to think about this. You and I, we don't know everything. If you're here today and you say, man, Jeff, I do know everything, newsflash, bro, you don't, all right? I don't know everything. But could it be with God, the fact that He is God, capital G-O-D, God who created everything, but He also keeps everything going. He created every person and sees everything that happens. Could it be that God's omnipotence, His omniscience, His all-knowingness, His all-power, could it be that God, in that all that He knows, could have, um, could have a better picture of what's reasonable than us? Because sometimes it's easy to say, well, God, I'm going to try to figure you out. I want you to be subject to my intellect. Well, that's kind of like not really making sense because it's God who created us. Amen? It's like, it's, it's like God is the one who gave us our minds to think with. So it very well could be, um, think, of, think of it like this. If you've ever been to a pond and you can look down a few feet and you can see, but you're not sure how deep it goes or what's underneath you have a fairly good idea of the pond. It could be six feet with you only seeing four. But it well could be a hundred feet deep. That's the way it is with sin, wrath, and judgment and hell. We see a few feet and sometimes we want to tell God, you know what God, what you do, your judgment in, in hell is unreasonable, but we're only seeing a few feet and God can see not only to the bottom of the human soul, but he can work through all the slime and the sludge as well. Because God knows everything, it is because of that that God can make these judgment calls such as he made here. Number three, godly heritage and culture will not save you. So notice notice he heads them off at the pass here in verse 8. He says, um, in the latter part, uh, he's talking about their argument here against him. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, the Jews were not stupid. They read the Old Testament and they saw that God was not going to abandon His people. In other words, the Jews were not going to be annihilated. So they thought, okay, so if God has an eternal plan for the Jews, then just the fact that I'm a Jew is good enough. But notice what he says here. He says, For I tell you that God is able to raise from these stones, this is in verse 8, is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying, you know what? You can't catch 22 God. You cannot put God into a box. God will do what God will do. Notice number four. Judgment is near, final, and eternal. He uses a really interesting metaphor in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Um, when, when you think of an axe, and don't worry, I'm, I, I brought this just as, just to show, I'm not gonna walk down the aisle, alright? Everybody okay? Like, whoa, dude, he has an axe. Alright? When you think of an axe, an axe is applied towards a tree, um, as long as the person's mind is functioning, who loses the battle? The tree. Well, what if you hit it with the handle? Point conceded, alright? 
The tree loses the battle. When the axe, the axe is figurative of God's judgment. And notice that he says it is laid at the root of the trees. It means that the axe is already down at the bottom and the chopper is getting ready, God, to raise back the axe and let fly. You know, there's some people I've talked to and they say, well, you know, Jeff, man, I'll I'll get saved someday. Who told you you have time? I mean, here today, or people who are listening to the podcast, who told you that you have time? I mean, is, is that not, is that not, let, let's just, let's just put a phrase, is that not insane to put your eternal destiny into something that you have no ability to control? I don't know, I don't know if I'm gonna get hit walking. That'd be kinda sad, right? Walking from the church to the parsonage, like, like, bro, you, 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 you totally missed, you know, first grade and, and, you know, you gotta look both ways across the street, okay? You kinda, you know, like fail blog on that one. But we don't know when we're gonna die. And some people say, well, you know what, Jeff, I'll, I'll get saved a, a, another time. Let me give you a statement here. Um, it's from a, from a writer. Uh, hell is truth seen too late. It's seen too late. Notice the sense of urgency that John the Baptist has here. He says it's laid to the root of the trees. That's urgency. And for those of you here today and you have never been saved and transformed, you may have been a member of a church or or you, you may know about Jesus, but you've never been born again the way the Bible says, I plead with you today, don't put it off. There's a sense of urgency. This is not a picture of, well, let's pick up and talk about the next chapter next week. Is today is the day of salvation. Are you prepared to meet God today? Are, are you, like seriously, if it happened today, are you ready? Now, notice the last part of verse number nine. He says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit, we've got an apple to help us out here with the visual. The fruit is repentance. Um, in in the, the revival this, this past week, um, the pastor said something during the invitation time, and he says, Lord, bother us with lost people. It was just like, I, I was up there on stage, I had preached the sermon, and people were there praying at the altar, and, and the pastor, he just, he just kind of, he said, you know what? God bother us with lost people. I pray that God forgives us for having dry eyes and cold hearts. Y'all Okay. I mean, the days that, that, that I have gone and maybe the weeks that, that you have, have gone or, or the moments to where we don't have lost people coming to our mind and, and we can just go and see people as people and, and as, as firemen and, and, and caterers and soldiers and moms and dads, but to see people who need Jesus. This is not a game. This is not a game. It's not a game for me and it should not be a game for you. Are we okay? This is real. This is urgent. This is a pressing message saying, are you ready? May God forgive us if we've ever had had cold, rationalistic conversations about the Bible like it's some kind of a philosophy book. May God so stir our hearts and, and it may, may so, do such a, a work in us that we will uh, be bothered by that. It was just like right there on stage. I said, Lord, and it was just like the Lord brought back the, the, the names of people here that I know who've not been saved. And I said, God, if you give me the strength, I'm going to go there. The next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find these guys and share the gospel with them again. 
and again until they get saved. You say, well, man, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to like shove anything down anybody's throat. Man, we're not talking about that. We're talking about in love going to them and saying, look, you need to be saved. You need to be saved. And when they see the passion, when they see the realness in you. Some of you probably need to come to the point where you stop making excuses for your kids and grandkids. I've seen that tons. Like in church in the past, you know, you have you have a guy who's like, you know, 30-something years old, and you know, he's out, he's out just just living, um, living for everything but the Lord Jesus. And you know, mom will say, Well, you know, when he was a boy at VBS, he got saved and he was 10, and I know he's just backslid, and I'm we Think about it. if you if you backslide, you have to have something to backslide from. If you never actually slid forward, then how can you slide back? You see, you have to repent, and when you repent, you're changed, and when you're changed, you're transformed into a new person. Um, there's a, a friend of mine and. <clears throat> I just want to, I, I was going to give this an announcement earlier, but I just want to stop right here and, and give you a chance. Um, he, this is a, a young man here in town uh, who is not saved. Um, he uh, talked to him. I actually gave him a ride to his uh, new apartment. He's been on some hard times um, lately. And uh, I said, bro, what are you doing for food? You just, just moved in. He said, man, I don't have any. And um, just, got, just got a job, just, just starting out, uh, been through a lot of hard times, needs, needs Jesus. And I said, well, I've got, I said, man, with my cooking, like you, you really don't want me to cook for you. All right. OK, you don't want me to cook for you, but I got some stuff I can give you. But what I want, what we did in Bible study, I mentioned it to the class. Um, I'm going to go over there this evening. So if you guys have any food that you'd like to bring, canned food, something to make. Buy something from the store. Um, we'll be over practicing some music at my house right across the street this afternoon. If you want to bring it over anytime, um, and I know we outsource a lot of that to food pantries here in town, but I think it'd be great to just kind of from Rocky Mount Baptist say, you know what, we not only care about your soul, um, but we but we care for you. And I asked him again last night, I was like, bro, you know, have you thought any more about getting saved? And it's just, um, and he has. So that would be one way that, that you could participate there with that. Repentance is necessary to be saved from God's wrath. You see, now Jeff, um, what exactly is repentance? Well, I put it there in your bulletin. Let's just walk through this together very quickly. This is what repentance is. Repentance consists of, number one, a true sense of one's own guilt and sinfulness. An apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. That means that I don't deserve His mercy, but I realize that it's there. Isn't that a good truth? That there is mercy? Number three, an actual hatred of sin and turning from it to God. Number four, a persistent endeavor after a holy life and walking with God in the way of His commandments. You know, what you're ready to ask, this is the question you say, Jeff, am I ready to get saved? This is something like what's going to come to your mind. Notice what the people ask in verse 10. What shall we do? Well, okay, what should, what should I do? What do I have to do to be saved? Let me just give you, by survey, this is not random example. This was asked by tax collectors, chapter 3, verse 12, by soldiers in chapter 3, verse 14, by a lawyer, praise God. Chapter 10, verse 25, a ruler in 18, 18. The Jewish population there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. A jailer who had tortured Paul. 
in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, and then even Saul before he was Paul in Acts chapter 22, verse 10. He's recounting his early conversion. And when he sees that vision, he asks, what must I do to be saved? You say, now, Jeff, how do I know I'm ready to be saved? Well, notice what they say here. They ask a question. They don't make demands. I talk to some folks. They say, well, I think I'm ready to get saved, but here's how it's going to look, right? Here, here, here's the way that my baptism is going to be. Here's the way all of this is going to happen. But notice that they simply ask a question and they say, what shall we do to be saved? Senator Jeff, what's an evidence of repentance? Let me give it to you very, very quickly here. Number one, it would be selflessness with possessions. Verse 11, he says, those who have two tunics share with those who don't have any. Verse 12 and 13 with the tax collectors, this would be honesty and business paperwork. It's really hard to tell folks that you're saved if you're consistently a crook. Okay? So if you're, if you're a professing Christian and you're being crooked in your business, repent and stop. Okay? If not, then go tell all the people who think that you're a Christian that you're not. Because in Rocky Mount, the ones who are serious about Jesus don't want to be misaligned by those who are playing a game. Can we say that? Is it okay to say that? Matthew chapter 25. Remember Jesus gives that distinction. He says in, in the final judgment there will be the sheep and there will be the goats. And the distinction between the two is kind of what they did. Right? He says that the sheep, they came and he says, you visited me when I was in prison. You gave me food when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you came to see me. And he said, when do, we, when, when do we do this? When do we see you in any of those situations, Jesus? He said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Now, here's, here's the question. Are people saved by doing good things? No. They're not saved by doing good things, but a changed life to, to have come into contact with the merciful God of the universe. Don't you guys think that there should be a little bit of the reciprocating of that? Like if I have received what I don't deserve and I see people without their basic needs, then how can I claim to love God who is love while simply passing along and saying things? I've been guilty of saying things like this. Well, you'll get a job. The Bible does say, he who shall not work shall not eat. We understand that. But I just, I just want to put, and this has been, been in the last three years, the Lord has changed my heart on this. If we treated everybody as hard, if, we, if God treated us as hardcore as we treat some people who have made mistakes, they have not worked hard. Okay, They've not done the right thing. They've gotten hooked on drugs and alcohol, whatever it may be. But if God gave us the amount of grace that we give to people in need, then most of us would be in hell. Think about it. You say, Jeffrey, are you, are you endorsing laziness? Absolutely not. Hard work is a biblical discipline. But if God gave us the level of grace that we give to those people who have made mistakes, who have been unwise, then where would we be? Give you an example. A couple years ago, I went to a political rally that was um, organized against uh, the growing power of the federal government, which uh, I'm not a fan of. All right, I'm not. I'm not a fan. Just to let you guys know, I'm not really a fan of of, of big big government. Okay, I think that there's different, better ways to do certain things. But there's a, a guy in his 20s who got up and said one of the most horrendous things I've ever heard in my life. 
He was trying to represent a certain style of politics. And he he gave kind of this joke slash six story. He says, there was a guy who walked up. This guy's shoes were so beat up and so torn up that the sole was almost uh, attached from uh, the, the shoe itself. And it was just flop, 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 flop. And he walked up and there's this one guy standing there and this guy reaches in his back pocket and pulls out his billfold and in his billfold is a roll of $100 bills with a big old rubber band around them. That guy pulls that rubber band off that big pile of $100 bills and hands the guy the rubber band and says, fix your shoe with that. It's kind of like an awkward response among the people there. Senator Jeffrey, you a socialist. I'm the farthest thing from a socialist. Because what, what socialism is, is pointing a gun at one person's head, saying you will give to that person. What we're talking about is for us as Christ followers, out of the goodness of our heart, out of being saved, is it possible to truly, this is a formal question, is it possible to be truly born again, to have all of your sins forgiven? even the ones that mom and dad don't know about, even the things that your husband or wife doesn't know about, to have all of the things from as early as you can remember, to have your slate totally wiped clean, to be given grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy, and then yet see in James chapter 2, verse 14, the Bible says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? That's saying, come to church. We won't help you. Verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Is it possible to truly be born again and transformed when we are indifferent to the needs of people. I don't think it's possible. This is something that God has convicted me about the last few years, about simply um, going and talking with people like me, people in the same, whatever, you know, people who have jobs, people who have money. But if you ever notice throughout the New Testament that Jesus repeatedly went to those people who could not help him in return. And that's actually the best um, that, that's really the way that we see um, how we love Christ is if we help those people who can't help us in return. So I want to encourage you to think about that. Um, and notice, notice the final, the final um, page here in verse 14. The soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? He says to them, do not extort money but from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, what he's saying here is refuse to violate biblical principles and be free from materialism. Now, I'm going to give you this example, and I'm, I'm not saying that I've always done uh, the right thing or that I'm perfect. I'm far from that. But when I was in seminary, the first, um, this would be the winter break. So it would be December of 2005. Uh, I was working for UPS as a driver helper, right? You down, you, you, you go and you drop the packages off all day long and get a good leg workout. And, and there was a guy who was the driver, and, uh, and he wasn't a Christian. So we talked a little bit about that. And he said, well, we're going to stop for lunch here and we're going to go into, into Sonny's Barbecue. 
And man, any, I love Sonny's barbecue. I, I truly think that if you put Sonny's barbecue on the top of your head, your tongue would beat a hole through your brain to get through it. I love barbecue. And so some of y'all get that later. And, uh, and so, so we went there. He says, well, man, this is going to be a good lunch. I've got a hookup. I was like, what do you mean a hookup? He's like, well, I've got a friend who's a chef and I've got a friend who's a waitress. So what we're going to do, bro, we can order anything we want on the menu and they're just not going to count it. But what we'll do is just give a few bucks to each one of them. So basically, steal from Sonny's. That's like, that's like the dumbest theft. You, Dude, we're going to steal barbecue. Like, seriously? Come on. I mean, you know, anyway. Um, and so we went in, and it was just like the Lord, the Lord had convicted me, like, you know, don't do it. Don't do it. So I just, I looked at, you know, it, when you're in seminary, you're, you're poor. And the further along you go in seminary, you're even poorer, right? You know, and uh, you're like, okay, do I mix the smarty in with the ramen noodle soup, or what do I what do I do here? And so we're there, and and he says, man, order anything you want. And I said, well, I'll just have. I remember it was. I still have the receipt to to remind me. Six dollars and forty seven cents. It's a sandwich. The receipt's pretty faded now because. And he's like, no, seriously, man, you, you know, go ahead and order. I was like, no, I'll, I'll just go ahead. And, and I told the waitress, I said, if, if you don't mind, you know, can you go ahead and count this and just bring me the receipt? No, we'll do it that way if that's cool. You know, because in my mind, you know, there are different scenarios. It'd be like to stand up and say, sinners! But that's not really the best way to win people to the Lord, right? Okay? Some of y'all have been trying to lead, lead to the Lord by people like that. Then right after that, they do the spinning back kick with the King James Bible. Boom. Ground and pound to the face. Ever been there? So I didn't think that was the best way to go about it. So she brought it back and, and I paid for it. And he, he, he bought this ungodly amount of food. I mean, it was, it was just like, you know, it was huge. And just gave her a couple bucks and, and ripped off, ripped off Sonny's. And we got back in, in the truck. Um, he said, he said, man, he just looked at me and said, you make me almost want to believe. And it's like the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said for $6.47, that can make the difference between his eternity in heaven and hell. That was the only day that we worked together. I lost contact after that. I don't know if he's saved today. But I believe that the evidence of repentance in our lives is the very thing that would cause some people to look at us and say, you did what? You almost caused me to believe. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. As our Fred and the musicians are making their way here, maybe you're um, one of the people and God has spoken to you, spoken to your heart, and you realize that you have never repented and you need to be saved. You know that if you died right now, and the axe is laid to the root of the tree of your life, that you would not be innocent before God. And you realize that you need His forgiveness. Just right now, where you're seated, just tell Him, say, God, would you forgive me? Would you save me? Ask Him to save you and to change you. And if you did that, we're going to ask as we begin to sing in just a few moments, if you could get up out of your seat and walk down, we call this making it public, where you're walking down and you're saying by that, and I'll be here to take you by the hand at the front, you're saying, I am ready to follow Jesus.
Why don't you come? Some of you, you need to be baptized. You've been saved. And you need to follow the crowds just like in John chapter 3 and say, what must I do? You need to be baptized. Some of you, the Lord has led you to join this church. You know you should be plugged in here and you're ready to serve. We ask that you would come. But one thing before we pray and before we offer this time of inviting you to receive Jesus, I would warn you that you don't know how much time you have left. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation.